really going to read a pretty good chunk of the beginning of chapter 1 because I think it's important that we understand and set the context for where we're going today. This is the word of the Lord. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now I want us to read in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, just the first four verses. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that transforms and gives grace and strength. And God, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would dwell in this place today. We invite you, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word and through your power. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I want to tell you a story to begin before I begin to address the word specifically. And this story is uh, basically how I began, became a pastor, how I became your pastor. Um, now, it's not the specific story of um, how I heard about this church and how this church heard about me and uh, my family and how we came here last year, and the nuts and the bolts. But I'm talking about early on in my walk with the Lord and how the Lord called me into ministry. 
because I, I believe it speaks to very strongly this passage and some things that happened in this passage. And I want to focus on certain aspects of my early Christian experience. I came to Jesus when I was with my father and my brother and two of my brothers. We were on a trip. I grew up in western Michigan, but we were on a trip to St. Louis, Missouri, which is where my dad grew up, where my grandfather and my grandmother, Thomas, lived. And on that trip in August of 1979, so I'm two months away from being 40 years old in the Lord, um, I was deeply convicted of sin on that trip for a number of reasons. And my dad and my brother, who was in the Coast Guard, he was on leave, uh, they talked to me about Jesus. And in a hotel room in St. Louis, Missouri, I... Uh, I cried out to Jesus. My, 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 my dad and my brothers were asleep by then. I was in a, in a bunk, and, and I wept, and I called on Jesus, and I gave my heart to Jesus. But I was uh, raised a Roman Catholic. I was in the Catholic Church. It was the only thing I knew. Um, I was uh, just, uh, just shy of 16 years old, and, and I wasn't really discipled. I wasn't really led into discipleship. I still went to the Catholic Mass and uh, still heard about Jesus. And uh, by God's grace, he kept me from getting into all sorts of bad stuff that uh, some of my classmates in, in, uh, excuse me, in high school were, were getting into. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and uh, the Lord helped me, and, and I witnessed to some classmates in, in high school. And there was some, there was some fruit there, uh, but time came for me to leave uh, I graduated from high school, and I went to where, uh, went to college to where some of my older sisters had gone to school. I went to Notre Dame. It was kind of a, kind of a thing in my family to go to that school. And um, this is a great story, and I don't understand why somebody's complaining about it. <laughs> um, so. Um, my sister had just graduated from Notre Dame, and she told me uh, she was a Christian, she was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, um, and she told me how difficult a place it was for somebody who had faith, for somebody who was a believer, because of uh, just the atmosphere on the campus, even though it was a religious campus, there was a lot of people were very skeptical about the Bible, very skeptical about faith. And so I set my jaw and I determined that I was going to go in and I was going to be a man of faith. And during my first semester of my first year, uh, the fall of 1982, I was, I, was, I was very prayerful. I was as prayerful as I could be. Uh, I prayed maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day. And I want to tell you, to me, that was a mountain to climb. I mean, I, 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 would, uh, I would leave my room, I would walk out into a stairwell, uh, I was in kind of a high-rise dormitory, and that worked fine until the winter time, and then they didn't heat it, and so I had to take a blanket with me, and I would take my Bible, and I would pray, man, I would pray for everything I knew to pray for, and I would look at my watch, and seven minutes had passed. I mean, I would, you know. And I was witnessing to people. 
as best I knew how, but it just felt like I was spinning my wheels. So um, at Thanksgiving time, I went home for Thanksgiving break, and during that time, my dad and my sister, the one I just told you about, my sister Miriam, uh, they laid hands on me for me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to receive the gift of tongues, which is described here in Acts chapter 2. And I knelt on my living room floor, and they prayed for me. And you know what I received? My knees hurt real bad because I was, it was a bare floor. That's all I could think. <laughs> That's all I could think of. And nothing happened. I just felt like nothing happened. And I began to pray, God, if you want me to have this gift, I'm going to ask you to give me this gift. If it's your will for me to receive the gift of tongues, I, I'm, I'm asking you to give it to me. And I prayed that way for weeks. The semester ended. I went home for Christmas break. Nothing happened. And then I went back, and at the beginning of, I, I want to tell you it was within days of the beginning of the second semester, somebody invited me to a Pentecostal church. Somebody invited me to a church pastored by a man named Lester Sumrall. How many have heard of Lester Sumrall before? pastored a church in South Bend, Indiana. I had never heard of him. Why? Because I was raised Catholic. Come on. Catholics heard of the Pope. They haven't heard of Lester Sumrall. So I went to that church and we were praying at the end of the service. First service I was there. We were praying and it wasn't even Lester Sumrall preaching. It was a guest preacher. And at the end of the service he said, let's make our, let's make our seats pews, a kneeler. Let's turn around and kneel down and pray. And let's pray for our families. It had to do with the message that he was preaching. So I, I turned and I knelt down and I did what he said. I began to pray for my family. And in the midst of it, I just I got agitated in my spirit. And I just said, God, I heard people praying in the spirit all around me. All these people were praying in the spirit. And there was just an atmosphere that was electric. And I said, God, I want, to, I want the gift of tongues, and I want it right now. I stopped praying, oh God, if it's your will, and I prayed audaciously. And the power of God hit me. I went hot, cold all over, and I began to speak in other tongues. And I've spoken in tongues every single day of my life since that day. Now, you might say, well, that, okay, good for you. So what? Well, here's the difference. This is what happened. I won't deny that there is an element of myself, because I heard my sister praying in the Spirit back at our home in Michigan. And I was drawn, if I can just be perfectly candid with you, I was drawn to the supernaturalness of it. I was drawn to that. It was just like, this is a power encounter. This is me piercing the veil. This is me going over into something that is supernatural. And I'm experiencing the power of God directly. And I just, I just want that for its own sake. How many want to be touched by God? doesn't matter how he touches you. Just touch me. There was an aspect of that that was going on. 
And I remember I went home that night and I walked in my room, my dorm room, and I got in my bunk and one of my right, three roommates, and one of them was a, he was a pitcher for the Notre Dame baseball team. And he was too good looking and cocky for his own good. His name was Brad. But Brad had been exposed to some charismatic Catholics. And so he, 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 he noted right when I walked in, he goes, what's going on with you? Something is you, I was, I was walking four feet off the ground, you know? And I was like, God, this is incredible. And, and he said, what's going on with you? And I looked at him, eye to eye, and I just started speaking in tongues. And he said, no way. No, he must have said no way five times. No way, no way. My life changed on that day. I began to walk in a level of power that I didn't even know was possible. Little pesky uh, temptations and sins fell off of me. Like, like, like Samson breaking, breaking little strings. They were gone. My prayer time exploded. I prayed a half an hour and it felt like nothing at all. Then I was praying an hour. Then I was praying two hours. But the most powerful thing that happened was all those people I was spinning my wheels with, I started witnessing to them and people started coming to Jesus like crazy. My roommates came to Jesus. People got saved. And then they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, one of my roommates got saved. He got baptized in the Holy Spirit, got speaking in tongues. His dad got mad about it. His dad got mad because he wouldn't drink anymore. His dad wasn't mad because he was living right, because he tore down his girly posters in his dorm because he was reading the Bible. His dad get, didn't get mad. His, his dad wasn't okay with that. His dad was mad that he wouldn't drink. His dad was mad that he wouldn't be a good old boy. So he made him, the next year, he made him move out of our room and room, move in with another roommate. You know what happened? That roommate got saved and got baptized in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, as supernatural as it is, as much as it's about experiencing God's glory as a good for its own sake, I'm telling you what it's about. It's about the power of God to witness. It's about the power of God. And it's what separates, forgive me ladies for using the saying, it's what separates the men from the boys. It, there's something that happens. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about my own life. I'm talking, so nobody, please don't, nobody say, oh, you know, you're, you're making some, Christian's good and some, that's not what I'm doing. I'm telling you an experience. I know. I've lived on both sides of the fence. And I was a Christian. I was a believer. I was beloved of God. I knew God. I was saved. My name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And I was witnessing to people and I was praying. But I'm telling you, something happened. Something happened in me. Something powerful happened. There's tremendous power 
and blessing. And there's something that's going on in this passage that I want to share. And I, I really just want to talk to you about it. Um, because in part, it's my story. But my story is just a little bitty aspect of the larger story of the church. Now here's what's going on in the first part of Acts chapter 1. There's an introduction to this book that Luke is giving us. It's very similar to the introduction uh, that he has in his gospel. And it talks in general about how Jesus rose from the dead. And this is really picking up where we, where we left off at the end of the Easter season when I preached into May about the resurrection. And then we started preaching about the Holy Spirit. And this passage was really on my heart the whole time. Because Jesus, risen from the dead, and I've talked about this, there are kind of like three different, I would call them general categories of, of, of resurrection appearances that Jesus made. The first level of resurrection appearance is when he just reveals himself that he's alive. He just kind of shows up and then, he, then he's gone, right? So he's breaking it into the, to the mind of his disciples that does overcome the shock of his death and to realize, hey, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. He doesn't say a whole lot. He just shows up. He appears to them, and then he moves on. The next, the next category would be where Jesus deals with their unbelief. There are a number of passages like that. The road to Emmaus, he deals with their unbelief. Uh, when he appears to Thomas, he deals with his unbelief. So step one is, hey, believe. I've risen from the dead just like I prophesied, just like I predicted. Level two is deal with unbelief. But level three is what we're talking about here. This is where, G, where they're past their unbelief and they're, if you can call it, being used to being around the risen Lord. And he starts to actually teach them. He starts to give them instructions. And this has to do with him giving the Great Commission, which is in every one of the Gospels in one form or another. And it's here in the book of Acts. And that's what this, this chapter is about. It's about a level three appearance of Jesus. They're still, you, you, I don't even know, I can't even imagine what it have, would have been like for them to be in the presence of the risen Lord, but they were, and they were calm enough, and they were past their own doubts and, and the struggles of their mind enough for him to be able to teach them. Are you following me? So he's teaching them. And here, he's teaching them about the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says in verse 4. He says, while staying with them, another way to render that is while he's eating with them, he's literally sharing a meal with them, he says, don't leave Jerusalem. And the reason for not leaving Jerusalem, he picks up exactly where John the Baptist left off. What did John the Baptist say? I preached on this extensively. John the Baptist said, hey, when they came and they talked to him, like, who are you? What are you, what are you up to? You know, what, what's the significance of your ministry for, for Israel? We know it's important, but what is it? He goes, I'm nothing. I can't even untie this guy's sandal. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus picks up that exact same line. He said, John baptized with water, but not many days hence, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right? So now, the next thing that happens, they're, they're, they're come together, and they ask him, this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is an important question, and the disciples have gotten some bad press about this question. Now, here's, here's the general thing that I've heard for years and has been 
has been talked about. I'm going to get this thing out of the way because I want to get to my people again. So here's the deal. It was an expectation among the Jews. And this is one of the reasons why they missed, and I believe this is true. This is one of the reasons why they missed who Jesus was. And this is why they crucified him. This is why they didn't understand him. Because in the Old Testament, listen to me closely, this is, this is good. In the Old Testament, there are two streams of prophecy and teaching about the identity of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? What should we expect of him? When he comes, what's he going to look like? How is he going to act? And so forth. One stream is the victorious conqueror. That he's going to come as a mighty king and he's just going to bust the heads of the bad guys and he's going to set everything in order and he's going to set up a glorious earthly kingdom and it's going to make the days of David and Solomon look like milk and water. I mean, it's going to be awesome. The other stream is what we call the suffering servant. This is where he comes. This is Isaiah 53. This is where he comes. He suffers. He's wounded and he dies. The people, because of the atmosphere, because they'd been conquered by kingdom after kingdom, and now the Romans had them under their thumb, guess which stream the nation of Israel was more inclined to look for? Just the great conqueror, right? They were looking for somebody to come and set up a kingdom. So Jesus comes as the suffering servant, and they miss the boat. Why? Because their expectation is that he's going to be some strong man that's going to come and set up a political kingdom. As a matter of fact, even Jews today are looking for a political Messiah. I've talked to them. They're looking for a natural human leader who's going to be just politically brilliant and is going to set up some sort of an earthly rulership. So that runs very deep in their thinking. So a lot of people have tagged the disciples' question with that bad thinking. Like they can't, like the idea is the disciples, they just can't get over it. Like the rest of the Jews, they were expecting this political kingdom. They were expecting it. Now, there might have been some of that going on, but there's something else here. Their question is actually legitimate. And Jesus doesn't say it's illegitimate. Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, would you get off that already? Look, I'm all about peace and I'm all about, the, that's not what he says. They ask about the kingdom coming in power, and Jesus basically says to them, yes, that's going to happen, but not now. That's what he says. And that's what's going on later when Jesus ascends. Where does he ascend from? The Mount of Olives. Why? Because that's where he's coming back to. That's what the book of Zechariah says. He's going to come back and he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. So all this is going on. Their question is legitimate. And that's very important for where we're going with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Their question is legitimate. They're expecting. They, they don't have anything in their mind. They're like, okay, we've, now we've got our head around this, that the Christ had to suffer and die. This is what Jesus explained to the two on the road to Emmaus. The Christ had to suffer and die. Then he's going to enter into his glory. Okay, so they're like, giddy up. He's now entered into his glory. So now he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. They, they did not understand that God's plans were vastly bigger than they could ever have imagined. What are his plans? I want to... Not to put too fine a point on it, you and me are his plans. 
That was his plan. His plan was not to end history right then. His, hand, his plan was to have a great big family of God that was huge and involved all the nations and the redemption of all the nations, not just Israel. That was his plan. So what Jesus says is he says, they say, are you going to set it up? Are you, is this time, now are you going to restore it? And he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father set by his own authority. In other words, it's going to happen, but the time is not revealed to you. But, there's, that's a very big exception, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The whole plan of the book of Acts and God's plan is like a pebble in a pond. It's like when you throw a rock out into a pond and it sends out sploosh. It sends out these concentric circles. That's God's plan for his people and that's God's plan for the church. Now, let me, let me talk about these two things. The mission and the power to do it. First, the mission. In these little verses, these short verses, God is giving you his perspective. Everybody say that. God's perspective. God's perspective. God's perspective on why this blue marble in space that we call planet Earth keeps spinning. If you want to know why does God put up with all the wickedness, why does this thing go on, why are we still here, even Christians ask that question. What's the purpose of my life? Why does this go on? This is the answer. This is God's golden opportunity to say, all right, my son's risen from the dead, sin's atoned for, I'm calling it. I'm sick of all this mess. That was his big opportunity, but he didn't take it. Why? Because God's love is much more vast and his vision is much more broad than we can imagine. Now, there's all sorts of philosophers, there's all sorts of theologians of different religions, and even Christian, they call themselves Christian, and there's all sorts of atheists and all sorts of stuff. All sorts of people have all sorts of views on why we're here and why the world keeps going. Some, it ranges from people way over here who say, well, there's, there's no purpose. There's no purpose at all. It's just, we're just an accident. We're just, we're just a product of, of nature and chance and evolution and there's nothing to it. And then there's people over here that say, well, it has to do with our God and so forth and so on. We could get into all that. There's no reason for it because the Bible speaks what the purpose is. The purpose for which the world goes on and why God put you on it is his mission to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with every creature under heaven. That every, everything in your power Everything within your scope is your mission. That's the reason. God created everything. God puts up with all sorts of sin and all sorts of uh, impurity and all sorts of uncleanness of the nations. And he does it for one reason and one reason only, to save as many as he can possibly save before the time ends. There is a time. His, his word says his spirit will not always strive with man. There will be a time when it ends. And God alone knows that time. But before that time, as long as the ball keeps spinning, the mission is in force. And that's the only reason it's going. Now here's the thing. St. Augustine said this. God, you have created us for yourself. 
and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. It's a great quote, isn't it? In other words, that's another way of saying every human being has a Jesus-sized hole in their heart. And there's absolutely nothing that can satisfy that void. There's nothing that can scratch that itch except for Jesus. People try throwing money in there. They try throwing fame in there. They try throwing drugs in there. They try throwing sex in there, money. They're trying to do everything they can to try to scratch the itch and satisfy that gnawing desire for meaning. But only Jesus is going to satisfy that desire. That's why, incidentally, as this whole society turns away from God, it's what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, people are going more and more, more and more into perversity, more and more into chemical addiction, more and more into all sorts of wickedness because they're trying to numb themselves or trying to scratch that itch. But only God can satisfy that. Now let me talk about the church. Just as every individual human being was created for God, the church was created for missionary greatness. It is our reason for being. One man said, the church exists by mission as a flame exists by burning. You ever see a flame that didn't burn? It's like a flame stops burning, it's not a flame anymore. God's purpose for us is that we would share the gospel. It doesn't mean you have to go and move to Africa or something like that. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is God has a purpose for you. And that purpose is that you would be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. That's what he wants from you. That's what he desires for you. Every human being, and I'm going to speak more specifically about Christians, every Christian knows in their knower that they're made to do something for Jesus. They're made to be used of God. We're made for something that is bigger than ourselves, that is beyond us, not easily within our scope, not easily reached. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, okay, my big goal for the day is to get to the kitchen and have a cup of coffee. That's, that's my big goal. That's it. That's your goal. Yeah, because I want to attainable goals. Well, that's silly. That's your whole purpose in life. That's an empty life. Everybody knows the people that we admire, the people that we look to, are people that did something great, something that was beyond themselves. Amen? So this is, this is what God has us here for. But this is, this is what happens, and this is before I talk about the power of the Spirit. Somebody who will not lay hold of God's mission for their life, God's purpose for their life, and a church that will not lay hold of God's purpose for the church, which is described right here. What happens is false vision comes in. Just like an individual who won't accept Jesus, has to fill that void, and false, there's a false savior that's going to try to, or multiple false saviors that try to come in and fill that void, because nature abhors a vacuum, right? Something's going to try to fill that void. In the same way, the church of Jesus Christ, and in local expression as well, has got to have the vision of Christ. If you don't have the vision of Christ, there's going to be something that fulfills that purpose. And false vision is going to is going to get pulled in. 
And God's people end up getting distracted and end up getting off into all sorts of, all sorts of different things. People get vision for the local church body, get crazy ideas of what the, what the church, because, because we don't have our eyes fixed on the prize, our eyes get fixed on other things, and we start getting off. So how do we, how do we keep our focus? How do we keep our focus? We keep our focus because Jesus says very clearly, he's saying, if, 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 if you think, I mean, like, I've got a nice Bible here, you know, it's leather bound and it's got gold on the pages and everything is nicely formatted and everything else. I imagine other people here have nice Bibles, but I want to tell you, this is crazy. Jesus telling these 11 guys that they're going to go and they're going to save the whole world. Think how crazy that sounds. We look back on it, and we're like, well, yeah, they did it. You're like, yeah, but put yourself in their shoes at that time. That's crazy. It's, it, wasn't beyond, it, wasn't, it wasn't lost on them that this was beyond the scope of their ability. And that's why Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem until you get the power. Because the only way to carry out a task that is beyond you is to receive power to do that task that is also beyond you. Are you following me? It's impossible. It's impossible. I'm going to tell you something. If you think it was impossible for these 12 guys, for, Paul, for Jesus to say, yeah, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uttermost parts of the earth. We still speak with Galilee accents. How are we going to reach the uttermost parts of the earth? You think that's crazy, impossible. I want to tell you something else that's impossible. It was impossible for me without the power of God to reach even one of my roommates. It doesn't matter if the task, if the bar is low or high. You do not have it in you. I do not have it in me that we could carry out one, even the smallest aspect of the mission of God without the Holy Spirit. We can't. Anybody here? Um, who's, got, who's got unsaved loved ones? Well, practically everybody. Has anybody here ever tried to be the Holy Spirit to them directly? You know, try to convict them of sin? How's that work out for you? Doesn't work out too well, does it? It's impossible for us to be the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's power to come upon us. This is what the day of Pentecost is all about. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying the power of the Holy Spirit is essential for that mission. Is essential. This is, this is, this is home plate. This is up to bat. This is you you just starting the whole thing, you've got to have the power of God on you. To do that which he has you here on the planet for. Right, so the second you, the second you say, ah, I'm not into the Holy Spirit stuff, you just, what's just happened is the power to do the only thing that he even has you here for has just evaporated. No wonder people, Christians end up aimless, and, and there's all sorts of stuff. Christians, statistically, very often deal with 
a lot of the same aimlessness, a lot of the same sense of pointlessness or hopelessness in their life as unbelievers do. What's going on? Because we, we've forgotten why we're here. We're not here to pay off our mortgage. We're not here in order to accumulate wealth or, or to, you know, fill out our bucket list or whatever it is. That's not what we're here for. Anything that we could accomplish on this, on this earth, one split second in heaven outweighs it all. So accomplishments here on earth that the world calls accomplishments don't weigh anything in God's purposes. You win one soul to Jesus, it will change you forever. And it will bring somebody to heaven. Can you imagine the day standing before the throne of God and there's somebody next to you that wouldn't have been there if you had not led them to Jesus? You're changing literally eternity. That's, what, that's why this is beyond us. This is the power of God. Now, what is Pentecost? What is the Feast of Pentecost? What is the day of Pentecost in that day? What did, it, what did it mean? Well, the original meaning, and you can go back to the book of Leviticus, go back to Exodus. This is called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. Because from the Passover, remember Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead at the Passover. From the Passover, you count out seven weeks. Seven times how many days in a week? Seven. That was fourth grade math. You got 49 days plus the one day of the festival, 50. Penta, 5, 50. That's where, that's where Pentecost comes from. Now you say, what, is the, what was the Feast of Weeks? What was the Feast of Pentecost about? It was the first fruits harvest. It was the festival where the first barley sheaf of the season was laid on the altar. It was, it was a celebration of harvest. So being, this is not, this is not mysterious. This is why we say, you know, the disciples, this is how we know that the disciples, when they prayed together, we know that they prayed for 10 days. We're like, how do we know that they prayed for 10 days? Because Pentecost is 50 days from, from Passover, and it says Jesus walked with them for 40 days from that time. So he was, it was a week to 10 days that they were praying together since from, from his ascension to the day of Pentecost. They had that time. And Pentecost is about harvest. Pentecost is not, I want to I speak reverentially here, because the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is holy. He's holy. And I want to tell you, I have had supernatural power encounters with the Spirit of God. I've had power encounters where literally his power knocked me to the floor. And I couldn't get up. I'm not talking about, you know, show. I'm talking about I physically couldn't get up off the floor, and I felt like it was 10 minutes, and it was almost an hour. And God changed my life. I've had, I've had encounters with the power of God and the manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as a missionary and as a pastor where there's tremendous things that have happened. And I want to tell you, it feels like you've, you're sticking your finger in a light socket where there's, there's power going through you. 
But at the end of the day, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about just feelings. Because some people have some feelings and some people have other feelings in response to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get into that. I'm going to talk in this series. I'm going to talk about the difference between a manifestation of the Spirit and a response to the Holy Spirit. Some people confuse those two. But I've had that. But I'm, I'm telling you, in holy reverence for the manifestation and the presence of God that I felt on my actual mortal flesh, I want to tell you, that's not ultimately what it's about. Ultimately, it's about the power of God flowing through you that bowls over your fears, that bowls over your inhibitions, and that changes you into a different type of person that God can use in ways that he couldn't if you didn't have his power flowing through you. That's what the power of God is about. That's what the day of Pentecost is about. It's about bringing in the harvest. It's about saving other people. One of the greatest paradigms. Has, has anybody here ever shared Jesus with somebody directly or indirectly and had the answer come back? Well, who are you? Who are you? You're a sinner. You've got problems. I know you. I know the problems you've been. I won't ask for a show of hands. Here's one of the greatest paradoxes of the, of the New Testament age, of the church age, between the ascension and the second coming. God uses people who need the cross to preach the cross. Anybody still need Jesus? Anybody need forgiveness yesterday? How about the day before that? Amen. Every day we need forgiveness. Here's the paradox. God uses you and me that need forgiveness to preach forgiveness to other people that need forgiveness. That's amazing. And the only, the only answer for it is the power of God upon us. So, so what do we do? How does this come about? It says, after Jesus ascended, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. They went up to the upper room. And it says in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Saints, I want us to be a church of prayer so bad. I'm so broken in my spirit. I want us to be a praying people so bad. Because we don't have a chance if we don't pray. We don't have a chance for the move of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a chance to touch this community. Oh, money bags could fall on us and we could build all sorts of programs and we could, we could gather all sorts of, attract all sorts of people. But that doesn't mean that we're doing what God has called us to do. The only thing by which we're going to accomplish anything is if we flow in prayer together. One of the most powerful things in this, I was just talking to Patty about this last night. <laughs> it says, together with the women, they were in one, themselves in prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Don't blink on that last one, you'll miss a major truth. If you read the relationship between Jesus and his brothers from the beginning of the gospel to the beginning, from, from literally, from John chapter 2 all the way up through this, you're going to find a very interesting story. Because when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, he moved down to Capernaum. Nazareth is up in the Galilean highlands. Capernaum is down on the Sea of Galilee. So as you're looking at your Bible map and you're in the back of your Bible, it's a little short distance. But if you're actually there, it's a huge drop. It's, it's like a different part of the country. 
And he goes down to Capernaum, and at the end of John chapter 2, it says, and, and his mother Mary and his brothers were with him and his disciples. But something happened in Capernaum. He began to preach. He began to cast out demons, and they thought he had gone nuts. That's, that's, that's gospel truth right there. They wanted to get him out of there. They, he's, he's lost his mind. And a, a rift came between Jesus and his brothers in those days. And after that time, they literally made fun of him. They didn't believe in him. That's what the, God, that's what the Bible says. His own brothers did not believe in him. Oh, you want to be a public figure? You ought to go up. You ought to, you ought to, ought to gather some disciples. They literally made fun of him. There was a rift between the brothers of Jesus and the disciples. But now, all of a sudden, they're one. What happened? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. That's what happened. And Jesus went and showed up to James, his brother, the eldest of those brothers, and they had a chat. How many would like to be a fly on the wall on that one? Well, it's not given to us to know. But that settled it. Now, there's a message here, and it's a message that I've spoken about unity, and I'm telling you right now, this is, I believe this is the message for this church, is unity. I'm talking about this in Philippians, midweek when I'm teaching in Philippians. If you ever want to, if you want to sum up the book of Philippians and understand what that whole book is really about, there's one line in chapter 4 where Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with one, one another in the Lord. Two powerful women leader in that church that were fighting like cats and dogs. And Paul says, I plead with you to agree with one another in the Lord. What were they fighting about? Who cares? First of all, it's none of our business. But who cares? Who cares? Remember what I said about false vision? When you, don't have the, when you don't have God's mission in mind, when you don't have your eyes fixed on what Jesus has set as our reason for even being on the planet, much less being in Camas and much, much less being in North Lake Church. When you lose track of that, you get off. You lose perspective. Oh, the number of things the churches have split over. Churches have split over having drums. Churches have split over not having organs. I mean, literally, there are churches where like, well, bless God, you know, my great-grandfather bought that organ, and it's going to sit, nobody plays it. It hasn't been, and I like organs. I have no problem with organs. We don't happen to have one, so I, I, can, I can use this illustration with impunity. But nobody's going to move that organ. My great-grandfather, well, nobody plays it. Nobody's played it for three years. But we're not going to move it. Well, we've got a, you know, a new pastor comes in. We, look, we got all this space. We, we, we arranged, we could, is anybody playing the organ? No. When's the last time somebody played the organ? Three years ago. Well, we need to move it. And then somebody leaves the church because you moved an organ. I guess it's God wants us to be one. It's not natural for us to be one. I'm going to say it. It's, we are not naturally inclined to be one. We are naturally inclined toward fracture. 
because that's human nature. God wants us to unify. He pleads with us. I'm going to call this side of the church Euodia and this side of the church Syntyche. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, agree with one another in the Lord. Just, just come together. Just come together. Well, that means I'm going to have to give up something that's important to me. That's right. You got it. In favor of the greater thing. In favor of the greater good. Let me just ask you, what would you trade the power of the Holy Spirit for? Your way with the drums or the organ or the carpet or... I mean, people... We're naturally inclined to this. Let me tell you about, how many have heard of Azusa Street? Azusa Street Revival? Azusa Street happened in uh, 1907. Somebody's God was formed in 1914, but Azusa Street was a revival. There's a street called Azusa in, in Los Angeles where this revival broke out. All you have to do, I remember from the first time I was in a Pentecostal church, people would just say that name and they'd speak it in hushed tones. Azusa Street, oh, and people's prophecies, we're going to have another Azusa Street, and everybody's like, ah, hallelujah, you know, we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit like Azusa Street. Let me tell you about Azusa Street. Azusa Street was a, there was a mission, church, little storefront on this, in this part of L.A. It wasn't terribly glamorous. Little church, and the pastor was a black man named William Seymour. He had been born in 1870 to a big family. His parents had been slaves. And they had been emancipated at the end of the Civil War. And he, he was raised in unbelievable poverty. And there he was preaching. He was a man in his 30s. He was preaching. He'd get in the pulpit. And he felt so unworthy to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that he would kneel behind the pulpit with a bag over his head. That's how he would preach. I'm not going to take a vote on whether you think that's the way that I ought to preach from now on. Because you can forget about it. But he knelt behind the pulpit with a bag over his head and he would preach out of a plastic, out of a paper bag. He would preach the gospel. And the power of God fell in that place. Let me tell you what it was like. We talk about it. Oh, Pentecost. Oh, we want another Azusa Street. Do we? Do we? Because all of Los Angeles was scandalized. People were in there. And you know what? I know this is hard to believe. But they had black people and white people worshiping together in the same room. And you know what? There were Asian Chinese people in there too. And they were worshiping. And not only that, there were young and old, there were rich and poor, and I mean the poorest of the poor and the wealthiest of the wealthy. And they were worshiping together and they were praying together. You can just do some research, but they got crazy. We're a bunch of Presbyterians on our wildest day. God bless the Presbyterians. Everybody say that. God bless the Presbyterians. All right. We are, we are a bunch of high church starch neck stiff people compared to what was going on at Azusa Street. They were calling on God. The power of God was falling. Crazy stuff was happening. Listen to me, folks. Listen. 
unity. The unity of God's people is a prerequisite for God's spirit to dwell. They work together in one accord. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. Unity is a prerequisite, but it's also a manifestation. That's the good thing. It rolls. But I just want to say to you, I want to beg you on bended knee, let it roll. Let the unity roll. Paul says, do every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Everybody say every. Every. Make every effort. Don't throw stumbling blocks in front of people. Don't. An old preacher, old Church of Christ preacher that got baptized in the Holy Spirit. His name Brother um, Brother Hardison, Jim Hardison. He used to say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? The mission, the command to go into all the world or across the street. Or across the kitchen table. That's the main thing. How do we do it? By the power of God. Can we summon that power on our own? No. We need the spirit of God. Indwelling us. Empowering us. Flowing through us. We need him. We can't do it without him. How does he flow? He flows by unity. It's not by coincidence that this manifestation, it comes on the community. I want to tell you, the word of God says everybody has an anointing. Everybody here has an anointing from the Holy One. Every single last one has an anointing from the Holy One. There's power in that, in that anointing. But there is greater power in what we call the corporate anointing. This is the anointing that rests on the whole body. This is where it says that he's enthroned on the praises of his people. So when we come together and we worship, and as, as the Apostle Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without wrath and without doubting. In other words, no strife and no doubt. In faith and in unity. We're coming together, we're praying, we're worshiping God together, and Jesus comes and says, I can find a home there in North Lake. There's unity there. Those people are crazy about each other. Why? Because they're crazy about me. Oh my goodness, they're actually dying to themselves. They're actually putting aside these things that they thought were important and they've decided that what's important to me is important to them. My power can flow there. That is, this is why he sent his Holy Spirit. It's what he's doing. It's what he's doing until he comes again. Now, I'm going to wrap this up by saying this. From chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all 
filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Lester Summerall always used to say, circle all. In your Bible, circle all. It's for everybody. This gift and this power is for everybody. I want to invite the musicians to come. And I want us to pray. I'm not going to invite you forward. But I'm going to ask you to do, if you're able, what I mentioned the capture had us do. If you're able, I want you to make your pew a kneeler. I want you to turn and I want you to kneel. And I want you to begin to call on God. They weren't many who prayed in that upper room. But the result was nuclear power because they sought God. I want to ask you to seek God right now. I want to ask you to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this place, in this city, in this community. Wherever you are, I want you just to pray. Let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Hallelujah. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. God, we are reminded of the words of Moses who called out to you, Father, and said, if you don't go with us, what's the point of sending us up? Jesus, if you don't go with us, Today, if you don't go with it, if your Holy Spirit doesn't rest upon us, if you don't pour out your Holy Spirit in this place, everything we do is in vain. God, we're asking for nothing less than revival. God, we know that you've brought us together from the four winds of heaven. God, that we are different. We are different people. We're different one from another, God. We're different within our own households. God, we don't have a chance of being unified. God, because our hard hearts always want to have our own way. But God, I'm asking in Jesus' name that you would have mercy on us. God, that you would flood this place with a river of your Holy Spirit. And God, all the impurities, God, let there be a flash flood of your, of your spirit and of your presence. Cleanse away our impurities, oh God. Cleanse away our sins, oh Jesus. Purify us and cleanse us, Lord God. You look with mercy upon your people. You look with kindness upon your people. God, you look with clemency on your people and generosity. Father, I ask in Jesus' name right now with the agreement of your saints, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in this place, that you would fill us one and all with the power of your presence, Lord God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Lord God, we ask. I'm asking you right now where you are, ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, I already, I've already received, I already received that gift. Get filled again. Ask God for a fresh refilling of, your, of His presence in your life. Ask for an outpouring of His grace on your life in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, hallelujah.
Oh, Father, right now we declare, God, that we want to do this your way. God, we want to do it your way. We want to, we want to receive your power just like the disciples did in the beginning. We want to come together, Lord God, like Euodia and like Syntyche, like the disciples and the brothers of Jesus. God, we're, we're asking you, Lord. We're asking you, Father, for a flow. We're asking you for an anointing. We're asking you for a, the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, God. We're asking you for the high gifts of the Holy Spirit to begin to manifest in this body. God, that there be healings. God, that there be words of knowledge and words of wisdom, that there be miraculous manifestations. God, we ask in Jesus' name that people right now who have oppression upon them, they're fighting with depression. They're fighting with family conflicts they can't overcome. In Jesus' name, Father, as we submit to you, we're asking for a flow of your Holy Spirit. God, we're asking in Jesus' name that every time we come together as a body, God, that we come together prayed up. We come together expecting the things of God. We come together hungry for the word. God, we ask you to take out of us, Lord, all our appetite for the things of this world. In Jesus' name, give us the audacity. Give us the faith, Lord, to believe for an Azusa Street. Oh, Jesus, pour out your spirit. Pour out your grace. Pour out your power. Pour out your mercy. God, pour out your blessing. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, oh God. Father, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you. God, we glorify you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for pouring out your Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit would say to his people. Truly, truly, I am in your midst as a mighty consuming fire. Resist me not. Allow my fire to consume those things in your life that are a yoke on your neck. Allow me to consume those things in your life that trip you up when you pray, that leave you grieved when you walk away from your brothers and sisters. Allow my fire to consume you, to rest upon you. I have that fire for each and every one of you. Don't count yourself small. Don't count yourself outside. Don't count yourself as marginalized, I am your God. You are my people. And my blessing and my purifying love will sweep through your life and heal you and restore you one and all. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future. So draw near to me. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. 
let what I'm doing in you today begin a new day for you. And your eyes will, will see my glory manifest on your behalf. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, save us. Let's stand to our feet. Let's stand to our feet. Let's worship him. Let's worship him. I just want you, if you can stand, I want you to raise your hands to Jesus. I want you to raise your hands to Jesus. Saints, forgive me for crying so much for being one of those weepy pastors, but I love you so much. I pray for you so much. I want the gifts of God to flow in your life so badly. I want the spirit of prayer to rest upon you so badly. I want God's best for you so badly. I desire God's spirit and presence on your life and your home and your children so badly. God, we worship you today. We worship you. We want you, God. We don't even know how to want you, but just teach us how to want you. Teach us how to desire you. Teach us how to blow past all these silly things that trip us up and distract us. Let your Holy Spirit rest on every child of God in this house today. Pour out your presence, God. Pour out your love. Pour out your power. Let not one be passed over. Let everyone be blessed and empowered and filled with your fire, oh God. Set us on a pathway, a collision course with your greatest blessings, oh God. God, bind us together as a body. Let North Lake Church be a name of praise before all the nations. Be a name of praise in Camas, Washougal, and Vancouver. Be a name of praise in the larger Portland area as the church that's so filled with love, that's so filled with unity, that there's no murmuring, that there's people that just come together and are blessed in your presence. And there's something special there. There's something anointed there. There's something powerful there. God, we thank you for it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.